Ahoy! It's your boy! And today is Sunday, December 3rd. And normally that would mean that your boy has to go to bed early and get a good night's sleep because they got a long week of school starting up tomorrow. But lo and behold, we are on the cusp of dead week. I have my last day of formal classes on Friday. And really, I mean, I guess I'm, you know, who knows? I may be going to graduate school soon here, but for the foreseeable future, that's the end of formal classes that I'll have, at least of my undergraduate college career. And uh, it felt kind of weird because I didn't even really think about it, <clears throat> excuse me, until I, I mean, I, it had crossed my mind. I knew that that was happening, but the, uh, you know, on Friday, I just had one class and then I met up with some language partners and we were just kind of shooting the shit for a little bit. And it wasn't until I got home that I realized, oh man, I should have kind of had a moment, you know, where I like was like leaving campus and kind of looking back at the Campanile or at Sather Gate or whatever and been like, well, actually, as I'm saying this, I realize, fuck, I'll be there in like a week for my final. So I'll just, have, I guess I will have an opportunity to do that type of stuff. But, you know, it was just weird that here I, I've, you know, I've literally kind of, I don't know, walked away from classes for, you know, the last two and a half years, but hadn't really hit me that it was the last kind of day of formal classes until I got home. So, um, but yeah, man, it's weird to think that, wow, really the end is nigh for this, uh, journey that I've been on for the last four and a half years, and that's kind of cool. Um, but yeah, so we're entering uh, what's called dead week, which is there is no classes being held. We're supposed to be using this time to, to prepare for finals. And uh, I have three finals that I have to sit for. Uh, of my four classes, uh, only one of them, that the final is just an essay that I have to turn in a week from Wednesday. Um, shouldn't be too difficult. Uh the other three classes, excuse me, sorry, it's uh, just going to be one of those days, but um, last uh, the other three classes I do have finals I have to sit for, two of them are on Wednesday, the paper that I have to write happens to be due that evening as well, and then my last final is the very last available final slot on Friday from 7 to 10 p.m., and uh, that's pretty brutal. Um. But, uh, hey, that's the way the cracker crumbles, people. And so, you know, what are you going to do? Um, and I guess considering that I, I never have to go back to school, it's it's kind of hard to complain. So, um, and yeah, I guess how are we going to be finishing up here? Pretty good, I suppose. My, you know, I'm only taking two classes for a grade. I have good grades in those classes, so I'd have to work pretty hard, you know, to not keep that A, I think, and um, so that's a good thing, and the two classes that I'm taking pass, no pass, you know, I, I should prepare, I don't necessarily need to crucify myself getting ready for the final, because I think I have a high B in both of those classes, which is actually kind of strange, because I've sort of talked about how, you know, I what I should be doing is kind of throttling my efforts, and uh, try not to be too hard on myself, since I don't need to get an A in these classes, but I have to be honest, when it comes to most of the assignments, I've still kind of given my my best effort. And even then, I was like, you know, of the elective classes that I had to pick, these in some ways are kind of proven. You know, thankfully, I'm taking them past no pass. But there's a way in which these two classes have kind of, kind of proven to be the most difficult classes that I've taken so far. And um, so, yeah, it's just kind of weird how that works out. Um, but yeah, I should be pretty well situated to um, definitely pass those classes, so that's good. And then really kind of the capstone of all this is the thesis that I've sort of talked about, which I admit I've kind of been 
kind of mono I was going to say monomaniacally. I'm not really sure how to word it, but it's really been the sole thing I focused on kind of for the last week and a half, just knowing that, you know, of all the things I'm doing, that has the most work that has to get involved. And so it's nice to be looking up at least today and realizing I'm just about at the end of the second major section of it. And uh, I said it was a minimum 40 pages. Right now, I think I'm at like 58 or something like that. I have uh, maybe five or six more pages of the of the main section, and then I had I still have to write an introduction and a conclusion. So yeah, I mean it'll be, you know, maybe high sixties, deep in the sixties, maybe knocking on the door seventy pages by the time it's done, which, you know, is a little, it's a little uh, fluffy. I'll put it that way. At this point, there's a lot of fluff, and so maybe with a, a final pass, um, I'll get it down somewhere it's it's not going to be anywhere close to 40 but it's actually wild too because i think you know up until the beginning of the semester what the 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 you know the the project that i had originally set out for myself was actually much was going to be twice as long you know if it well i didn't realize this at the time but seeing as things are panning out i realized if i hadn't cut back significantly the the thing would have been about twice as long um i've talked about how the premise of the thesis is basically i have a a teacher who um, you know, he has this idea that all accounts of creation, uh, I, we would really call it like scientific accounts of creation, not really science as you think about it, but science as kind of the original definition of science, which is like what we know, what we know in terms of empirical observation. And the idea is that all accounts of creation kind of accomplish the same things. They do it through different forms of allegory. But if you sort of scrutinize them long enough or unpack the kind of allegorical tropes that they're using. They're kind of talking about the same things. And uh, we don't need to go into all that malarkey right now. But I guess what I'm trying to say is it's not like uh, Joseph Campbell's Hero with a Thousand Faces, you know, the idea of the hero's journey, that uh, if you look at all these different uh, epics or stories from various cultures, they all have these same uh, features to them. His theory is more like, although these stories look very, very different, they're actually accomplishing the same thing. So... I think partly predicated on the fact that I'm a comparative literature major, or was one of my majors was comparative literature, that I was going to compare and contrast two different types of creations or cosmogonies and see how closely or not they conformed to this theory. And originally it was uh, this um, sort of canonical text that's included with I Ching or I Ching or the Book of Changes, this uh, classic uh, ancient uh, um, book, uh, Chinese book of divination and philosophy. It has a commentary called Shi Zhuan, or uh, the Great Commentary is what it's also called. And uh, the other text that I was going to look at was Plato's Timaeus, which is a dialogue that I don't think most people know. I didn't know it before I was assigned it in class. And, um, you know, had I done both of those, this thing would have been twice as long. So thankfully, I just sort of cut it back to really, really the one text that I was interested in, was which was the commentary from I Ching. And, um, yeah. It's been interesting. It's been a long process. And uh, it's kind of funny, you know, I was actually thinking about this, like, I think the longest paper I've written before this was like 28 pages. And that was for uh, last semester. Uh, it was this sort of senior seminar class from a comparative literature class, which really was a class just about like uh, uh, Native American literature and drama. Like we actually read a couple plays and read a novel called Full Scrow, which I recommend. It's very, very good. And I wrote this very long paper that was kind of like a capstone for that class. And, uh, you know, it was just 
I don't know. It's like a lot of things in life, which is when you're only writing, when you're only being getting, you know, whether it's high school or whatever, you're getting assignments of like five, six, seven pages, you know, that feels like a stretch. Um, but once the assignment is just bigger, you think, oh man, how am I going to, how am I going to stretch something out that long? It just kind of takes care of itself. And, uh, I'm sort of finding that with this paper also, which is, you know, this is the longest thing I've ever written. And at first I was like, man, how am I ever going to write anything that long? And lo and behold, as long as the subject you're, or the thing you're tasking yourself with is big enough or sufficient enough, it just is going to take you that far. And it's also one of these weird things too, where it's like, if you give me two weeks to write a paper and it has to be five pages, I'm going to use all two weeks to write five pages, you know? But if you give me the same amount of time to write a 10 page paper, it's going to take the same amount of time. You know, it's almost like our brain somehow just sort of, I don't know, I'm, for some reason I'm thinking about like a fish that kind of grows to the size of its bowl. But there's like that phenomenon that you observe sometime, which is like, I saw a video recently on like one of the, you know, on the internet somewhere. It, I don't know what, what multiple, I don't know what uh, uh, ex, exponent, exponent of the 1080 it was. But I remember when I was a kid, Tony Hawk doing the, oh no, actually it was the 900, right? Tony Hawk doing the 900 was like, an event for the X Games. Um, now I think people have like doubled that. And then I guess, you know, I don't know what it is now, but I saw somebody do some insane amount of turns in the air. And it's just, it's, it's just this weird thing where like once, as soon as a gold medalist or some Olympian like breaks a record, everybody breaks the record. It's like before somebody does it, there's like a psychological block collectively in our, in, 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 the, in the collective like brain culture which is like, oh, it just can't be done. But once somebody demonstrates that it's possible, you just have tons of people who just all of a sudden are able to do it. And it's not like there's some like gross genetic mutation that's happening, right? It just sort of indicates that there's there's some there's a psychological component. And I think that's true with a lot of things, which is like if you've only written five page papers, writing a ten page paper seems crazy. And if you're like me and the longest page you've written the longest paper you've written up until now is like 28 pages. The idea of writing a 40-page paper seems nuts. But lo and behold, you just kind of put your head down and you chip away at it. And, uh, you know, you're writing, you know, something very, very long, you know? And, uh, you know, I don't know what to say about that. It's just, it just, it is what it is. But it's, uh, it's nice to see. I think in some ways it kind of has proven to me that, and I think this is what this whole, the whole purpose of doing this was, Sorry, I'm yawning. This is like it's just gonna be one of those things, man. It's Sunday. I'm tired. I've been sitting here for hours and hours and hours, and uh, I'm tired. And we're just this is we're just gonna get through this thing. And um, uh, yeah, what was I talking about? I'm talking about getting through my paper. Uh, yeah, I don't know. Oh, I think I was gonna say it's helped. It's demonstrated to me that I can uh, probably function in graduate school, which is really kind of what this whole thing was designed to do you know it's an honors thesis it's not something i'm required to do to graduate necessarily but because my grades were good enough it, it's bizarre that because your grades are good enough you're given the chance to do more work you know it's like uh my grade should be good enough it, like there, there i actually had this one thing maybe maybe more than once but like a, a teacher will be like if you're going into the final with x grade the final is actually optional for you because at that point, the final can only hurt you. But also, you know, if you've been doing well throughout the course, why should there be all of a sudden this sort of cumulative assignment that, I don't know, you just kind of 
I don't know, re-demonstrate that you know the material. So I remember actually maybe it was partly predicated on, was it predicated on COVID? Uh, probably some other disaster that happened in the world that is just that have have been so ubiquitous. I just can't quite place it. But I do know at the end of one semester recently, there was this email that went out that asked teachers to like be generous with grading, and I just can't remember what I can't. I just can't remember what it was. Um, but I do remember I was sort of beginning work on this semester sort of final paper, and the teacher sent out an email that just said, "Hey, you know what? I've decided that the final paper is going to be optional." So. If you're happy with where your grade is, you don't have to do it. If you'd like a chance to improve your grade, however, you can do the paper. And if you knock it out of the park, it'll help you raise your grade. So I elected not to do it. I think I already had it in, I already had it in the class. So, But um, I think about that stuff. Maybe as someone who may have a future in teaching in some capacity, I'm not sure what that would look like. But I noticed, especially recently, I've been thinking about how people lead their classes and, and just kind of think one by virtue of the fact that I'm an adult and I'm going to class I'm going to school with younger people I kind of get a sense of where they're at and I think like most things in life I mean sometimes they seem a little entitled or they're just I realize that they're calibrated very differently like uh I feel like for every paper that we get and maybe there's some gap that happened with COVID or something like that in terms of the education that people received in high school or something but I'm surprised that I go to an institution like UC Berkeley and every time there's a paper assigned people ask for these like enumerated expectations of like what the what the paper should entail how the teacher wants it structured and for me it's like isn't that just isn't it just an assumption that like at this point you know how to write a paper i mean a rubric is one thing right i mean i'm, I'm not talking about like uh the rubric against against which the paper you're writing will be graded people are literally wanting to be told how to write a paper um which seems a little bit strange to me um and i'm not really sure what to say about that except you know, having a having a rubric makes sense, right? Because I think especially as a teacher, you're probably likely to get some pushback, even from students who like don't aren't happy with their grade. It's almost like being a police officer, where it's like as a teacher, you're invested with like a lot of power. And especially in a world where like grades matter and GPA like has a really meaningful impact on people's future. When it comes to grading things, you really need a kind of uh yeah, you need something that you can point to to justify the grade that you've given someone. Because if they ever contest it, you know, you just want to make sure that you can, de you know, defend your choices. Um, and, uh, and yeah, that's an important thing to have. But yeah, I do find in some ways, like, I'm surprised at the level of uh, handholding that a lot of students seem to want. Um, but the other thing too is I, I I guess what I'm saying is I've talked about this in terms of like chemistry teachers that I've had in the past where people talk about how things aren't fair or something. And maybe I've even talked about it in terms of this semester with this political science class. But, you know, yeah, we have these tests or these assignments where the teacher asks these like really in the weeds, really granular questions, which I think are nuts and not how I would run the class. But it's not that, but, but I hear this response from students where they're like, oh, it's not fair. I'm like, well, it's not that it's not fair. I mean, you know, the teacher can test on whatever they want. Like, it would be unfair if it wasn't in the reading. But if the teacher can demonstrate, hey, this was a question pulled from this reading or this assignment or this point in the lecture, you know, as long as it's in there, you know, it's not that it's not fair. It may be, again, 
would it necessarily be the things that I would hope to draw people's attention to or that I would want to make sure that they understood because it seemed the most relevant or important to me in the class? You know, probably not. But it's not that it's not fair. It just sucks, <laughs> you know? Um, so, yeah, that's the kind of stuff I'm thinking about or at least pretending to think about because I need to talk about stuff. Really, I just feel like my brain is, uh, I feel like my brain is soup. And, um, you know. So, yeah, I, f I feel like the last time I was in this place where I'm sitting in front of a microphone and I don't know what to talk about, I started going off on a tangent about uh, angels in America and being a prophet of God and all that sort of stuff. And uh, I'm not really sure I have anything on the brain uh, that's really up to the same weight or seriousness. Uh, but what I do feel is that I don't know what to talk about. Um, so let's think. Actually, the thing that comes to mind is firearms. And uh, I feel like, I don't know, maybe I'm just sort of being uh, preemptively, um, I don't know, insecure about this topic. But um, I mentioned that I, uh, as a graduation gift, I bought another firearm. It's a Ruger SR-22, which is like a 22 caliber pistol. And uh, I got it. I picked it up. Thing was great. I went right to the range and I was shooting it and it was awesome. And I'd spent so much time over the last week, uh, like, you know, it's bizarre. I, this is going to sound nuts for people, but um, I, I uh, have literally been playing with it. Now, hear me out. Not just playing with a loaded firearm, but what I mean is, uh, and this is my, my personal view. I, I'm sure people would corroborate this, but I think if you're the person who has a you know, if you're deterred by firearms or you think that they're gross, this is going to sound macabre or something. But um, my experience so far as someone who was formerly not a gun owner, does not come from like a firearm culture family or something like that, I think initially it's very easy to be turned off by firearms because you're sort of, you know, convinced by the culture that there's they're somehow intrinsically dangerous. Now, don't get me wrong. They are weapons and they are dangerous and they are created with the express purpose of like shooting things and people and like ending life both people and animals and that type of stuff so that you have they have to be treated with reverence but there's also this kind of like incongruent fear that i find having spent some time with them now that people think that they're just like going to go off like i mean barring a sort of major mechanical malfunction Guns are actually pretty safe as long as you exercise caution and and really common sense. I mean, you hear these things, especially as you watch like videos on YouTube where people will be adamant that you need to keep all ammunition like outside of the room in which like a, a firearm is present if you're not shooting. And that's true. But, um, you know, it's not like bullets magically jump into firearms and detonate, you know, or like triggers accidentally pull themselves. Again, there are catastrophic mechanical failures where you know, maybe something like that happens, but that's pretty few and far between. Um, as long as you exercise some basic common sense, things are fine. So that's just a long preface to say, I think the, well, actually I'll, I'll start with this. When I went to pick up my firearm, um, you know, uh, there's a big run on guns lately. People are thinking the world's going to end. And so when you go to the, any store that you go to, there could be a lot of people. So I'm kind of queued up and then I see this sort of uh, petite woman, young, actually very attractive, if I'm being honest, but she was buying a firearm and it was clearly her first firearm. And so uh, I'm coming in right as she's kind of checking out. And uh, in a good move, the person who's selling her the firearm kind of goes through this protracted process, making sure that she understands how the thing operates. 
And it was just very clear the way that she was handling the firearm that she had never really done that before. And it, it was just sort of something that, that stuck in my mind because she was buying like this, I don't know what it was, but it was some type of semi-automatic pistol. And you're sort of watching him walk her through the process of like, how do you check to make sure the firearm's uh, unloaded? Uh, even if you remove the magazine, make sure you check the chamber and all that sort of, just like basic firearm stuff. But before he let her leave, he had, he both, showed her and then had her demonstrate that she understood how to operate the firearm by like loading a fake uh, dummy round into the gun and, you know, loading it and unloading it and all that sort of stuff. And the way that she was handling it was very, very clumsy. And it just, it was bizarre to be sitting there and watching someone go home with, you know, a potentially very dangerous item and be like, yeah, what what would you prescribe? As I was sort of thinking about it later, I was like, what would you prescribe for this individual so that they got comfortable with it? And I realized, oh, it's exactly the things that I kind of do at home, which is one, you, I mean, obviously you make sure the firearm's unloaded and yeah, you don't want ammunition anywhere nearby and you check it frequently to make sure it's unlocked, but you really have to handle and play <laughs> with your gun. I feel crazy saying this, but when I write papers or when I do just about anything, I usually have a deck of cards or multiple decks of cards like in my desk or nearby. And I'm just constantly shuffling them, constantly shuffling them. And uh, like for a while there, I had these like, I actually don't know if they're nearby, but I used to have these like fidget objects. And I always got them knowing that this was my tendency that I, but I, I, with the objects that I actually got, I just never used them. But what I always do is shuffle cards. I have just now, I had a deck of cards in here as I was working with my paper that are just absolutely torn to shreds just because I just have handled them to, to till they're basically in ribbons or whatever. But what has taken the place of that is a firearm, you know? And so, you know, I just sort of drop and reinsert the magazine like a thousand times. You know, I pull the slide back and release the slide. And I'm basically handling this firearm in the same way that I would handle like a shuffled deck of cards. Does that make sense? And even while I'm like watching TV or something, you know, I'm like practicing a sight picture or, you know, I have some targets on the walls that I like dry fire at. And so within the span of a week, I mean, I had put hours and hours and hours of handling into this firearm and became incredibly, incredibly comfortable with it, which was really the whole purpose that I got it. And the reason I got this firearm in particular, even though the guns that I have are 22, uh, 22 long rifle caliber um guns one's a revolver one's a one's a pistol semi-automatic pistol um you know there's a rule that you're not supposed to dry fire them you know just by virtue of the fact that the you know the the way the hammer falls on these specific cartridges is that if you do not have a bullet or sorry a cartridge in the gun and the hammer falls it's going to fall on the cylinder or it's going to it's going to be metal on metal it's just not going to be good for your firearm excuse me this Ruger SR22 is constructed in such a way that you can dry fire. It's explicitly it, it's 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 said that way explicitly in the manual. So I said, oh, that would be a great way to one get a semi-automatic pistol, so that I have a different type of mechanism to be shooting with and uh, and practicing with. And it's something that would one not be like a lethal round potentially, or you know, I don't know. I sort of lie to myself and say that the 22 caliber is like less lethal, although you definitely don't want to get shot with that either. But um. But uh, again, my I, it's sort of taken me some time to warm up to this stuff as well. So, um, so yeah, I said, oh, here's a semi-automatic pistol that's in 22 that I will be able to, um, 
dry fire with at home and get good at, but also ammunition is like dirt cheap. So I think when I was at the, when I actually picked it up, you know, I got many, many boxes of it, but they had like 50 rounds. It was like $6. And I was like, holy shit. Meanwhile, you look at uh, other ammunitions or, you know, it could be 50 cents per shot. So uh, much, much more expensive. Um, so where am I going with this? Oh, so I've been handling this firearm forever and ever and ever. And then after a week to the day, and this is predicated on some other frustrations I've had with the place that I bought this gun from, I was watching something. I don't know what it was, but I was watching something and I was just handling it like I normally do. And as I was loading and unloading the magazine, a piece of the gun fell out. <laughs> and I was like, what the fuck? And I, it's a piece of metal. I just heard this clink, clink on the ground. And I reached down and I pick it up and I see this like broken off piece of metal. And I'm like looking at the gun and I'm like, what the fuck? And I'm like taking it apart. I like removed the slide and I'm like looking inside and I'm like, where the fuck did this piece of metal come from? And then I go online and I start thinking, well, I mean, I, you know, I've not really like, bro like broken the thing down too much. I mean, I've removed the slide and all that sort of basic stuff, but I just Google image search, you know, Ruger SR-22 firing pin. And all of a sudden, sure as shit, I realized that the firing pin on the gun is broken, which if you know anything about guns means that the gun doesn't shoot. You know, without a firing pin, a gun doesn't function. So I was like, what the fuck? Now... The, the crazy part is that's exactly why you don't dry fire guns, or 22s especially, is because you'll ruin the firing pin. And I thought, well, that fucking sucks. Because one, it says explicitly in the manual that you're supposed to be able to do that. But how shitty is it that, of course, you know, this thing that 22 caliber pistols do, like the reason that you don't dry from is so that this doesn't happen. So how bizarre is it that I've, done the thing that your sort of, you know, common uh, convention says don't do has actually happened, even though the manual says that you should be able to do it with this gun. So, you know, it felt both kind of like um, appropriate, but also kind of like pissed me off because this is exactly why I bought the gun. Now, the other thing about firearms, which sucks, is when you buy them, you can't go back to the place that you bought it from and get help. I mean, unless they happen to have like a service department and are willing to like service the thing for you. Um, you know, it's not like uh, any warranty on a firearm is honored by the place that you buy it from. It's the manufacturer that you have to deal with. So immediately I know this is not just a matter of calling up the firearm store. I actually have to call Ruger, the manufacturer of the gun, and deal with it. So the good news is that Ruger has famously very good customer service. And so I literally call them up and the nicest woman I've ever spoken to in my life answers the phone. And I just explain the situation. I say, hey, I bought this SR-22. I've been doing a lot of dry firing and handling with it per the protocol and the instructions of the manual. And lo and behold, as I was handling it, the firing pin uh, or the business end of the firing pin then had like broken off and fell out of the gun. And she was like, oh my gosh, I'm so sorry. That's, well, it's, it's you know, I, I told her I had just gotten it a week ago. And she's like, oh, well, you know, you just got it a week ago and you must be really frustrated. And I was like, well, you know, it's not, not, <laughs> you know, not, not what I, it's exactly the opposite of what I wanted to have happen, but you know, it is what it is. And so they were just like, well, what do you want us to do? Do you want us to send you the part or do you want to like mail it to us and when we'll deal with it? And I, you know, I'm not really confident in my ability to uh, dismantle this, um, 
uh, firing pin mechanism and change this part, and I don't have any tools. So I said, well, why don't I just send it to you? And she's like, okay, well, in just a couple seconds here, you'll get a shipping label. You just have to take it to FedEx and uh, put it in a box and, and ship it to us. And I was like, all right. Now, this is a first-time thing for me, so the idea of, like, mailing a gun seems a little bit fucking weird, but lo and behold, I just put it in the box that I bought it in, and they said you can't have a, you know, the box it comes in has the Ruger, the brand, sort of on the box, and you can't have that showing, apparently. But what you can do is just get, like, a normal FedEx box, slip it inside of that, and it's good to go. You legally have to tell the people that you're handing it to that it's a firearm, which they were very weirded out by. I don't think they'd ever encountered that or if they had no one had ever like revealed to them that the box the parcel that they were handling was a firearm but i had to go in there and be like i'm legally i'm legally required to tell you that this is a firearm which they were a little weirded out by they asked me basically a hundred times if there was any ammunition in the gun or in the box which there wasn't and uh so yeah i don't know we'll see they're apparently going to have it back to me in like five business days but uh yeah i don't know what to say about that except uh it is what it is I bought this uh, graduation gift for myself, and it broke within a week of having it. So, thankfully, it's getting fixed at no no cost to me, other than the time it'll be away. But I will be curious. I mean, my my expectation is I'm gonna get it back, and I'm gonna handle it and do the same shit with it, and we'll just have to see. Was this a uh, was this a fluke or or what? I mean, I'm glad I got a, a chance to shoot it. I'd be I'd probably be a little more disappointed if I hadn't been able to take it to the range at least once. But um. But yeah, it was actually a surprise. I mean, prior to, you know, getting this new firearm and going to the range, I had not shot in, jeez, I don't know. Yeah, maybe before I went to Taiwan or something like that. But I've been doing a lot of practicing at home, and uh, I shot really, 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 really well. And uh, it's kind of bizarre, too, because I think it just makes me explore, like, well, what are my real interests in this area? I sort of announced... I think a while ago that I was going to like work through the marksmanship categories and and that's something to return to. But even um you know I do I do enjoy going to the range and I like shooting. Um but yeah, I it's I really enjoy like just having the thing here to like manipulate and handle. That's like really the joy of it for me. Again, it it sounds bizarre. It's like if it's like shuffling cards, why don't you just do that? But it's um yeah, it's just been an interesting thing to like learn about different firearms and uh kind of be introduced to just like a whole different ecosystem of something that I never knew much about and actually find pretty engaging and pretty interesting. Again, the sad part is, is it happens alongside, I mean, it, it's, I was actually thinking about this because I know I talked about this and I said a lot of shitty things about gun culture and how much I hate it. And I, I admit that a part of that is I, I have a fair amount of insecurity as someone who's like, uh, you know, I, like I hear this term all the time and people, you know, soy boy, you know, I feel like I'm a bit of a soy boy for most people. So I feel a little bit weird as a soy boy who's like buying guns or like going into a firearm store. And I feel like I'm, I'm certainly not cut from the same cloth as most of these people. But, um, and yet, um, yeah, so I guess I'm saying I lean into that and I kind of play that up because I, I think it's just my own insecurity, you know, about, of how people, you know, as, even as I'm talking about this now, like, how are people going to hear this and how will they react and like what does it sound like to them? Um, but I think the whole thing I'm trying to sort of get at, which has part, partly been my experience and also why I talk about the story of like, you know, the counterintuitives of like it's important to play with guns, which is I think if you've never handled a firearm and you're just sort of absorbing like what it is. And again, I'm not talking about the culture surrounding it. I'm talking about, you know, the items themselves. 
you know, it's just very easy to see them as these sort of like, you know, evil objects or something. But it's actually kind of interesting to to sort of, I don't know, see yourself as like capable with something that you never thought you'd be capable with before. And, um, and, um, yeah, I mean, I guess I'm thinking about that woman who like bought a firearm and was clearly not like not comfortable with it. I was just wondering, like, it takes a, how do I word it? It takes a little bit of a, I don't want to call it an intellectual leap, but it takes a certain amount of self-confidence to say, I know we kind of live in a world where these things are supposed to be sort of uh, siloed and sequestered and like kept it hermetically sealed away from everybody. But, you know, obviously I live alone. I can do whatever I want. And it's like, like, I don't necessarily feel comfortable if like people were seeing me like literally, again, not play in kind of an irreverent way, but I mean, literally handling this thing all the time. Because I think people hear that and they think it's just like me and my place. And it's like that scene from Taxi Driver where I'm like pointing it at myself in the mirror saying like, oh, you talking to me? You talking to me? Right? All right. It's not that. Um, but it's like I was thinking about that woman who was not comfortable with the firearm. And I was like, I'm just going to um, trust their judgment. And who knows what, the, like maybe this person was assaulted recently. I have no idea. But this person has determined that they need a firearm for self-defense. I mean, hell, maybe they just want it for recreation. But let's say this person reasonably has determined for their own safety they want to have a firearm to protect themselves with. You know, how empowered or comfortable does that person feel like getting very familiar with that thing? Or does the fact that we treat it as like this volatile, sort of caustic kind of uh, technology, does that dissuade someone from like actually spending the amount of time with it that they need, right? Because that's the other thing too. Like when I originally decided to buy a firearm, I it wasn't like I just had on a whim went to the gun store and bought one. I mean, I thought about it very seriously for about six months and like watched a lot of videos about gun safety and like took a pistol safety class and really, really thought about it, you know? And because um, I think on some level you realize like, um, you know, if you're going to be a firearm owner, you're introducing a variable into your life, which is, you know, if I sort of empower myself to like eventually like defend myself with a firearm, you really have to think like, is that something I'm willing to do? Is that something I want to take responsibility for? And of course, even if you buy one with the best of intentions, you know, you just have to recognize that you're introducing another variable into your life, which is, well, what if my place gets broken into and somebody steals it? Or, you know, what if it is just one of these things where like I'm at the range one day and you get, you know, a, a you know a, a bad piece of ammunition or what they call a squib load or something like that and the gun blows up in your hand and now you have no fingers or worse. Like, is this really the type of thing that whether, even if it's very remote or the likelihood of this happening is, is, is next to nothing, it's not nothing. Even if it A, what's the word? Even if it A- what was it uh asymptotically is that asymptot like an asymptote right when you're doing i forget which math it is but you know the line that approaches zero but never actually reaches an asymptote right asymptotically is next to nothing it's not nothing it could happen and by the way it does happen you know what i mean so you just have to think is that something that i really want to introduce into my life um and so yeah um, 
So yeah, I guess I would say, where is my position on this stuff? I, I, I still feel a little insecure about it, but that's mostly kind of wrapped up in how I think other people feel about it. I've enjoyed it quite a bit, and uh, I've actually found it to be a little bit consciousness-raising, you know, to think that... Um, I'm not saying that it's necessarily something that I want for other people, but I do think for people who might be interested in it, there's ways to sort of approach the subject and to think kind of critically and commonsensically about um, that really have nothing to do with the types of things that I certainly think are relevant in gun culture. See, I think the one thing that I find that I find kind of repugnant about all this is there's so many people who sort of posture as if guns and well, there's a, there's a couple of assumptions here, but I'll still say what I was about to say, which is I think there are a lot of people who posture as if guns are about self-defense or in some kind of weird ideological way about the second amendment or, um, I find a lot of people who really get into this stuff, they not only see themselves as like, it's not just their capacity to defend themselves, but to defend other people, which I think is a little bit weird. They've kind of deputized themselves to kind of be like a protector of the world, which, uh, you know, look, it, it certainly happens, right? There are anecdotal stories about there's like an active shooter and then some guy who happens to uh, have a licensed concealed weapon is able to sort of uh, intervene and save the day. Um, I think I don't think that should be the reason that people buy a firearm necessarily. Um, but uh, yeah, I think at the end of the day, it's just a lot of people who they really just like guns and they like, you know, pull trigger, boom, and they get a type of rush out of that. And the reason they want big guns is because they're bigger booms and they feel tough. And it, and they've kind of, you know, they've watched Black Hawk Down a couple times. And, and it's really this kind of, a romanticization it's a part of their personality it's a part of you know in the same way that someone could be goth or the way that somebody could be punk or rockabilly or something like that there is a kind of firearm dude thing that people get into almost like cyclists you know what i mean like i'm convinced that half the people who get into cycling just do it because they they like the gear they like the bike they like the outfit and they, they just they're cultivating a personality and there's definitely that type of thing that happens with firearms as well I mean, like I said, every time I go to the firearms store or buy ammunition, I hear people having the exact same fucking conversations. You know, it's about the restrictive California gun laws, and it's about this or that. I mean, when I was just looking at ammunition options for this uh, new pistol that I got, I just wanted to see, because when I first got my gun, there was just no ammunition on the market. It was catch as catch can. You know, there was, this was right around COVID, and there was just nothing available. But I was just, you know, things are pretty well stocked these days, and so I just wanted to see what was out there. And of course, I'm waiting and I'm hearing this person behind that counter have this long-winded story with another customer about, oh, well, I just can't. First of all, we're in California. Why does everybody speak with a Southern accent? I swear to God, they fucking do. But this person's like, oh, I was just, uh, you know, visiting family and wherever. And, uh, you know, it's just a completely different culture over there. I saw this guy come, come back from the range and he was just walking to his car and he just threw his pistol on the passenger seat and took off. You know, and I was like, hey, well, it's just a different culture over there. And that's like, that's the world they want to live in, you know? And, uh, you know, I don't know. I, as I'm saying that, I feel the need to like, you know, sort of say something against that. I'm not sure that a real sensor of that like bubbles up intrinsically from inside me, but, um, but anyway, yeah, I don't know. Where am I going with all this? I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. 
I think in California, we're just sort of led to believe that like most people don't f- own firearms. But I, I'd, I'd be curious, you know. It's weird too because I like don't broadcast or communicate to anybody in my life that like I own a firearm or that I'm interested in them, even uh, superficially. But um, yeah, I don't know what that means exactly. It's easier to talk to people about Squid Game, I suppose. <laughs> Which, by the way, is violent, right? Like, actually, now that I'm thinking about it, it's like that that movie's littered with gun violence. Isn't the opening game that red light, green light thing? It's just people getting shot. And by the way, dude, this is funny, actually. So the reason I was even thinking about Squid Game is because, uh, well, I rewatched it recently. But the reason I rewatched it recently, sort of chipped away at it over the course of two weeks, was um, they have that Squid Game challenge on Netflix. Do you know what that is? They literally reenact Squid Game but they do it with like human people. I mean, the show is with human people as well. But I mean, they do it with like, it's like a reality show where they reenact the Squid Game games. And uh, it's, it's, it's you know, it's, it's pretty interesting actually. And it's one of those things where it's like, I don't know if it's the way it's edited, but there's a real human drama. Like, uh, you know, they just really put the psychological pressure on people. Where it's like, this is the closest we're going to get to the Hunger Games without real bullets. But they do, if, you, if you've if seen Squid Game, you realize that it's just, that's, it is this sort of like, uh, um, what do you call it? Thunderdome? Is that what it's called? Thunderdome? I don't know. Fight to the death type of thing? I don't know what it is. But, you know, people die in Squid Game. And so they do this thing where they, they kind of allude to that, where everybody ostensibly seems to be wearing these like die packs as the game is going on. And if they lose this thing just like explodes as if they've been shot. And clearly the producers have like instructed people to like lay down as if they're dead. And I just feel so fucking bad because it's like not only do you get voted off the fucking, like basically are you uh, disqualified from the show, but you have to pretend like you've been shot and fall over like you're dead. And it's like you see everybody who does it does it with like this smirk on their face. Like even they know this is fucking stupid. And it's always done in slow motion. And it's like, what are, what are we trying to accomplish here? Because as I'm watching it, it's not like I'm, it's, there's no part of me that goes, oh, that person's like been shot. It's this weird performative, like simulation of assassination that they're asking people to partake in, which is like, um, I don't know, maybe just have it be like paintball where they're, the, you know, the, the, the paint sort of splatters on them and they just kind of raise their hand and stand there. Why are we making them fall over in slow motion and simulate the fact that they've died when I know that that's not, that's not what's happening? Anyway, I recommend it. Oh, what else is good, man? Uh, actually, I've, I've actually been watching a lot of things. Um, my brother texted me the other day, and he was like, oh, I rewatched The Wailing, which is this Korean horror movie, which is exceptional. And so I ended up watching that last night. Myself, or I had it on during the day, actually, while I was working on this paper. And uh, I admit it stole more of my attention than I wanted it to. The movie is probably about like, I don't know, maybe it's like two hours and 45 minutes. And I admit there were some parts where I looked away and got distracted with my paper. Um, but uh, if you haven't seen that movie, I really recommend it. It's actually one of these movies where like the end, it has one of the most, you know, like every once in a while you're kind of watching a movie and, it, and it's good. Don't get me wrong. The first time I watched, I was like, oh, this movie is very good. But it has a kind of climax uh where it just has this scene at the very end, which is just one of the most psychologically 
arresting and penetrating endings to a movie I've ever seen. And it's not, if you've seen the movie before, it's probably not what you're thinking of as much as there's just this scene in a cave where this person reveals like who they really are. And it's just so well done visually. And it's not like CGI. It's all done like in camera, very practical. And it's just one of the most, one of those, you know, just one of these moments where you realize there's just so much that movies try to do. I think we were talking about this recently with like CGI and Bram Stoker's Dracula and stuff like that. But the, the things that are really psychologically penetrating in movies are usually just things that happen very practically and are accomplished without a lot of like uh, post-production effects. You know what I mean? Like if you like, it's actually interesting. If you go back and watch a movie like Vanilla Sky, you're actually kind of just even in a very poignant moment at the end where, you know, he's sort of on the edge of this building and he has to sort of take this kind of leap of faith to like return to the real world or whatever. You're actually kind of distracted by the amount of like computer generated vibe is generated for the scene. You know, literally the movie is called Vanilla Sky, which it sort of ends with this kind of like cream colored sky. He's on top of some New York building or what. I don't know if it's like the actual Empire State Building or something like that. But it's like you're actually kind of distracted by those moments. And now as, as I'm saying this, I'm trying to think of like what would the opposite of that be? Um, but, uh, you know, you don't need I guess I'm thinking of like I watched that movie The Flash or whatever on like well, formerly HBO Max, now it's just Max, which is insane to me that they dropped the HBO branding, um, which is actually bizarre because for some reason, all of the HBO shows, the old HBO shows are like popping up on Netflix, which seems fucking insane to me. Like if you took over Max, whatever, formerly HBO Max, now just Max, and you took over all that programming, are they just like trying to like gain money by like licensing that stuff out? It's like, does Netflix do the same thing? Does Netflix like create a show? And then go, we're going to license it to other people? That that doesn't seem like a good control of your brand or whatever. But um, but uh, where am I going with all this, dude? I don't know, man. My brain is fucked. It's Sunday. It's late. I don't know what the fuck I'm talking about anymore. There's a part of me that's like, let's just end it here. And, and let me move on with my life. And I'll let you. Let me return to my life. And I'll let you return to yours. And we'll just have a short installment here. Although I will say I did watch um last night I watched the new Todd Haynes movie May December which is on Netflix with uh, Julianne Moore and Natalie Portman and I really was looking forward to this movie I saw a trailer for it and I was like oh here we go now this is a real film Julianne Moore is obviously great and actually I did I didn't realize it was Todd Haynes which is actually I mean he's done some cool stuff like I'm not there the Bob Dylan movie that is really kind of remembered for Kate Blanchett, who plays Bob Dylan uh, at, at one point. A lot of people, a lot of different people play sort of versions of Bob Dylan, but the people really remember Kate Blanchett um, uh, in her role. But the movie that I remember him for is this movie called Safe, which I don't think a lot of people have seen. I know I've talked about it years ago on this thing, but. Uh, it's just this really great movie about Julianne Moore who plays like this, I think it's like LA, kind of Beverly Hills, housewife, not a lot to do. And the entire drama of her life is sort of centered, at least in the beginning of the movie, around like uh, buying a sofa for her house and like them sending the wrong one or the wrong color or something like that. Like the inciting incident of the film is like a sofa that's like the wrong color. But this woman becomes increasingly agoraphobic 
And it's like, it begins, it's just the way that it sort of unravels is very subtle and like not in your face. But clearly the film is making the connection. Like the reason this person is so absorbed in like their agoraphobia is like one, they don't have any real problems. And ultimately this thing that is manifesting very real in their life. I mean, the symptoms are real. It's not that the symptoms aren't happening, but it's entirely psychological. There's something wrong with this person. And it's not just like, oh, this person lives with a mental illness. It's it's kind of making the suggestion that, you know, if this person was able to have enough insight into their circumstances, they might have the type of, you know, they might have the resources, the internal fortitude to reauthor their life in such a way that where they wouldn't be dealing with this, right? This These symptoms wouldn't be presenting themselves. Really, really these are symptoms that are trying to draw, draw their attention to other aspects of their life that need tending to, like, you know, sort of, spiritual fulfillment or meaning or something like that but by virtue of the fact that like the culture that this person is in the their own presentation about their symptoms and the sort of seriousness with which they handle them and demand other people to take them seriously people are very much intimidated to like kind of be supportive and encourage this person down their path and by the end of the movie, you realize that they're just they're they're living in utter fucking lunacy. Where like they go to this special compound, this like uh, uh, sort of sequestered environment for people who live with the same type of agoraphobia, and it's just a very interesting movie because it's like on the one hand, you know, it sort of toggles this line of like, is this person nuts? Is this person sane? But also at the end of the day, does it really fucking matter? Because there could be a way in which even by even though completely conceding to these symptoms is like crazy making, it also could be the only tools or resources that this person has as like an escape tra escape trajectory out of their life as it currently exists, right? So it's like, let's say this person goes to the crazy compound of like-minded people who are kind of living with a delusional disease that is really just this kind of like a Rubik's Cube fucked up way of like not dealing with trauma or something like that. But let's just say that that is their life. Is it still possible for that person to go all the way in on that thing and yet still be happier than they would be if they were trying to bend themselves like a paperclip to live in the quote normal life that you and I live, right? So I see this movie and, I, and actually now that I think about it, I don't know how I landed on it because as I was sort of watching the opening credits of May, December, I was like, oh, Todd Haynes. Oh, I know that director's name. Who is that? And of course, I open up another tab and look it up and I say, oh, that's the dude who did Safe. And I'm looking at the other credits like I'm not there or maybe it's I'm not here. I don't know. It's one of those. But it's like, I'm like, how did I land on this film? I don't know. Maybe I actually, now that I think about it, maybe it was recommended in a podcast or something like that. Or actually, maybe it was just related to Julianne Moore or something like that. Maybe I was like on a Julianne Moore kick or something like that. But I was just thinking like, holy shit, like here's a real fucking movie. And how how have I not heard of this? And why aren't more people talking about this movie? So if you want a real movie recommendation, I would I would recommend Safe. And then I would recommend watching uh, May, December as well. Because, you know, Natalie Portman is kind of like the star of the show, right? And, you know, I have to admit, I've always had a crush on Natalie Portman. So I'm always going in and kind of like I feel like Natalie Portman if I could like draw the person that I sort of ended up with in my life it would be Natalie Portman as I imagine her you know maybe not Natalie Portman as she actually exists right um, that would mean seeing her as a human being but um, you know as the sort of the the Natalie Portman of like you know my fantasy or something like that um, 
but yeah, it's a very interesting movie, and uh, thematically, it's a little bit different. Meaning, it kind of deals with this woman played by Julianne Moore, who, like many people, you probably heard of in the news yourself, was like a former tabloid star for being an adult who had a affair with a seventh grade student, not her seventh grade student. Uh, or actually, maybe I maybe I need to think about that. Uh, they worked at like a pet store together or something like that, but they were caught in the closet you know, sort of fooling around or whatever. But anyway, she's like pregnant with his baby at some point, goes to jail, have the, has the baby in prison. And this is all like, uh, this is all backstory to the movie. But basically she's this former tabloid figure, had a baby with somebody who was much younger than her. They ended up getting married. And so the film sort of begins where Natalie Portman is an actress who's going to be playing this woman in a movie that she's making and wants to sort of meet this person and get to know them to somehow inform the character that she's creating for this movie or whatever. And so the film sort of picks up where Julianne Moore is much older than her husband, right? This person who was a seventh grader when they met. They have twins together or something like that. And so Natalie Portman is just getting to know this family, getting to know their life. And it's a very different type of movie than Safe, but it's a little bit similar. Because as it begins, you think, wow, this person, Julianne Moore, like kind of has it all together. And like, well, yes, obviously criminal at the time that this happened. And yet there seems to be something about their life where things are kind of, you know, working out or something like that. But as the movie goes on, again, not in a heavy-handed type of way, in a very subtle way, it starts to point your attention at details in their life where you start to think, huh, well, that's a little bit strange. And, uh, yeah, it's just... uh, I don't know what to say, except it's just very refreshing to kind of see a movie or a filmmaker that deals with something that could be dealt with very sensationally or very judgmentally or very whatever. And 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 it, it's like, it doesn't need to, uh, how do I say it, moralize. I mean, the movie obviously has a moral stance, but it's like, for some reason I was thinking recently about like when you watch like sketch comedy these days or any comedy really, they always have to, if they're doing anything irreverent, they always have to have one character who sort of points out what's that what's being said is wrong somehow. Like if you have a comic character who's being irreverent or not politically correct or something, they always have to have a counterpart who's saying, oh my God, did you just say this? But they're both kind of undercutting the comedy and also kind of patronizing the audience because... On, on the, they're kind of wanting it both ways. They're wanting to both like use the irreverent humor, but also kind of minimize or blunt the impact of that by having at least someone, some character on the screen or something kind of indicate that, well, we're, we're saying this because it's fun. We, this is funny, but we know it's bad. They're, it's like a preemptive apology or something like that. It's just very nice to be watching a movie that deals with something that is going to elicit a strong moral response from people who are watching it but they're not feeling the need to like moralize it that way. You know, they're not just saying that this is wrong. It does a very good job of unpacking like, well, this is why it's wrong. This is the type of thing that, you know, how do we say, how do you say it sort of blooms out of someone who chooses to construct their life this way. And also without getting too heavy handed about it, really try to unpack, you know, the type of person who goes down this course, you know, this Julianne Moore character, what, type of life must they have led to bring them to this place you know it's not just that what they did is wrong 
And it's not just that they just have some aberration of personality or whatever, but in a very real way, what must this person have experienced at some point in their life to bring them to this place where this is okay, you know? And actually, now that I'm sort of making this connection together, and I'm probably bringing something that, um, you know, I, I may have talked about this before, but if you think about the, the you think about a movie like Safe, and you think about somebody who lives with agoraphobia, right? And some people just kind of announce these things, like, well, I have agoraphobia, agoraphobia. And that may be true. And there are some people who just kind of have things. Like, for example, I said very confidently one time, well, nobody just has anxiety, you know? And that was because it was my, in my experience, I told myself for years that I lived with anxiety. And while that may have been observably true, it also was, you know, I eventually came to understand it's not just like it's not just like that I have anxiety with a capital A operating in my brain. What I'm experiencing as anxiety is a symptom of some other unattended trauma or issue in my life that's not being dealt with. So if I just go about trying to treat the anxiety, I'm actually not going to be solving anything. I'm just going to be like dealing with things on kind of a superficial level. Once I deal with the root cause, the anxiety disappears, right? So at the end of the day, though, you know, uh, it's been demonstrated to me that actually some people just have no like uh, pre-existing conditions. They just kind of live with things like anxiety or the example that I think about is like impulsive suicidology. Like there are some people who have no external life crises, no, you know, uh, I mean, some people just think about suicide because they're living through life crisis or they live with some type of known diagnosis whereby they just have, whether it's major depressive disorder or something like that, suicide is one of the things that they think about. I've also just known and spoken to people who, for no good reason at all, their brain is wired in such a way where they have a voice that occasionally comes on in their brain and tells them to kill themselves. And that is a very unfortunate thing to live with. Now, I'm just sort of acknowledging that that certainly exists. However, when you think about a movie like Safe, and you are confronted with the type of situation where somebody is dealing with something that may not be just a known diagnosis with whatever, like let's call it agoraphobia. It's not just that this person has agoraphobia and that's the luck of the draw. It really does seem to be the case that this thing that we're recognizing and identifying as agoraphobia is really just a symptom of this constellation of other issues that are existing just below the surface that this person, you know, had they the clarity or the resiliency to sort of attend to would be able to actually deal with the, the thing that they're just calling agoraphobia, if you know what I'm getting at. But here's the thing. These things surface for a reason. And if in my position, let's say I'm the, you know, I'm, I'm treating this person or something like that, if I just invested all of my time kind of trying to explain to this person that what they're calling agoraphobia is not that, that there's, there's actually some underlying trauma, if I just sort of you know, uh, try to talk them out of that, that could actually be very devastating for that person. That actually this thing that could be completely, quote, delusional, and I'm trying to use that word kind of generously. I'm not quite sure what else to call it. That very complicated construction could actually be the thing that's keeping them together. Right? So I'm trying to use a real example, but I'm not really sure I can really do that with respecting the type of uh, anonymity that, you know, um, happens when, when you work on the crisis line or something like that. But just suffice it to say, there's been people that I've spoken with repeatedly who are convinced that some course of action is the cure-all for their life. But it's very clear to me that actually pursuing that not only could be worse for them, but 
if I talk them out of whatever, quote, delusion that they're living with, that could actually be devastating for them. Because that one thing that I think is actually impeding their progress could be the only thing that's like keeping them together. So anyway, I think that's just a long-winded way of saying, you know, it's just interesting, and I don't, yeah, it's just interesting that these two Todd Hain movies, who both have Julian Moore kind of as their lead character, deal with people who are in these like colossally, you know, we would say fucked up situations, but also does an incredibly uh, sensitive job of also trying to, uh, yeah, sort of pick apart and understand how do people end up this way? And also, is there a way in which we can be sympathetic? We can both can vehemently disagree with where this person is at and the course of action that they're taking, but also understand what must be going on with this individual that led them to this place. And that's just a kind of level of nuance. And and also, how do I say it? You know, we live in a time period where I think people consider themselves very generous and empathetic is a word. Everyone thinks they're an empath. But I think it's... Um, you know, there's a there's a type of uh, easy empathy that is very uh, easily there's kind of a low hanging empathy that people reach for, and I think sometimes the creative voices that we think are, you know, um, I don't know, uh, I'm trying to think of something less divisive than like not politically correct, but the types of voices that we think, um, you know, they don't really. I don't know. They're asking us to sort of go to a dangerous or what feels like a dangerous place or something that feels not entirely comfortable. I think they're actually sometimes asking us to kind of pick the higher empathy fruit, which is I'm going to present you with a character that you ideologically or for whatever reason uh, don't that you strongly dislike them. And yet I'm going to ask you to try to, you know, try to understand what led them to these circumstances with the exact same empathy and care and consideration that you would for anybody else. Right. Like if you watch a movie like uh, actually, I'll say this very briefly, and then we have to go. <clears throat> I watched this other movie recently called Manodrome, which is the first movie that I've sort of seen that tries to take a kind of character study and place it in like an incel-type world, right? This type of exploration of like toxic masculinity and what leads people to become, you know, incel ideology and that sort of stuff. And it's it's a fine movie. You should watch it, and it's okay. It's not very good. And of course, it's not very good because it ticks all the cliche boxes, which, by the way, I'm going to spoil it for you. But, you know, oh, of course, he's an incel because on some level, he's a repressed homosexual and that sort of stuff. That's not I mean, that's the kind of bullshit stuff that even as you watch it, even as a as a film, you go, this is exactly what somebody would think is underlying someone's kind of ideology. But even as you watch it, you just know that it's a creative cop out. This is not written by somebody who is actually trying to approach these issues or really try to express how a real person with some amount of empathy or whatever arrives at this place. You're, you know, it's, it's again, it's, it, it, it's sort of overridden with its own ideology. And so anyway, I'm just trying to say that, uh, you know, it's just refreshing. Compare that to a movie like May, December, or maybe even this movie safe by Todd Haynes, where, Somebody is, uh, again, presenting you with someone that it's very easy to be critical of and yet also trying to ask you to pick the high fruit of empathy and exercise the same level of thought and compassion that you would, um, whether it's with a, a Manodrome or another movie that I'm very critical of called Moonlight, which um, I thought was, um, mm, again, kind of low-hanging fruit. 
cinematically. But anyway, we're for someone who thought they were going to end early, we've gone a little bit over our time here. I know this has been kind of a scatterbrain and crazy uh, entry here, but uh, that's the way the cracker crumbles, baby. So, um, man, next time I see you, I will not be out of the woods yet. I'll actually just kind of be at the beginning of my week of finals, but um, but uh, that's okay. Uh, I still see a light at the end of the tunnel, and uh, we'll be seeing it together very soon. So let's uh, cut it off here. I'll look forward to continuing the conversation next week. And until then, I'll say thank you for your time. Thank you for listening. And ciao for now. <laughs>